have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. 10-5, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hi, sports movie fans, and thanks a lot for downloading the 17th episode in the Scoring at the Movies series. Every second week, we take a nice long look at flicks with bats, balls, skates, clubs, cleats, etc. If you'd rather we didn't ruin everything about this movie, bail, because we are the spoiling types. I'm the taskmaster warden of this podcast who sticks balls up his trophy case, Ryan Ellis. And here's the saucy quarterback who drives fancy cars directly into lakes. Wrecking ball, or just wrecking, I guess. Chris Gregorio. Thank you, Ryan. And my Hyundai accent thanks you as well for that compliment vis-a-vis fancy cars. You didn't really drive the car into the lake. It was more a matter of just pushing it into the lake, I guess. Yeah, that was kind of a sad end. What did we figure it was? A Peugeot? No, the Citroën, yeah? Right, that's what it said on yeah. the grill, right? Yeah. I wish my car had shocks that good. That thing had like yes. a good 24 inches of rise on it's the like a Chi Chi Chong movie for a while there. It was pretty good. Just like this is a car chase movie for a while there. That's Maybe true. the first of Burt Reynolds' career, and he was the Vin Diesel of the 70s and 80s with car chase movies. Did a lot of them. <laughs> the Vin Diesel? He's a little bit more hairy than Vin, though. And more talented than Vin Diesel. And was a bigger star than Vin Diesel. That is a matter of some debate, I think, Ryan, but we'll have to cover that later. In our VinCast. Okay, before we get into more talk about The Longest Yard, some cool runnings, rhythms, rhymes, and crashes. <laughs> feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. Get, get on up. up! It's error time. All right. Get on up was the part of the thing you didn't remember. I can't believe I didn't remember that. It's so simple. I don't know why we didn't know. You don't know how angry that made me as soon as we looked it up after we finished recording. It really should have edited it in so we didn't seem so dumb. Feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's bobsled time, you know, the bad insertion. I've done some post-production edits on our podcast. Not so much these ones, but ones with Bev. I can hear the difference, but I don't think it's too different, especially in this room compared to our other rooms in the past. Well, if you ever need me to do some voiceover work for you on the Top 100 Project, I'm happy to stand in for Bev. I'm pretty sure the (laughs) listeners won't notice the difference, right? You guys are one and the same. Oh, yeah. She has a husky voice, or I have an effeminate one. I'm not sure which. Little column A, little column B? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right. There's also some pedantic, as you like to say, corrections about the 1988 and 2010 Olympics on the website about cool runnings. Minor things, but I like to be accurate. So if you want to see those things, go to top100project.com. Fair enough. Okay, The Longest Yard was released by Paramount nearly 45 years ago on August 1974. It was a big success, one of many for Burt Reynolds in the 70s. Oh, before we get into the movie, what am I talking about? Your beer. What is your beer choice you're pairing with The Longest Yard? Well, I had to go with what was readily available in my refrigerator this time, Ryan, I'm afraid, but I felt the closest match would be mash up the jam in favor of the mashing that Burt Reynolds and a number of other characters take in this movie. The top has been popped. Fully work at its finest. Wrecking crew, Chris. Okay, I see he gets his beer ready to go there. We're going to do the nutshell of The Longest Yard. Former pro football player does the very thinkable and beats a bunch of amateurs. Well, let's be fair here. Semi-pros. It's very thinkable. It's very thinkable. Not my best nutshell of all time, but it'll have to do. (laughs) Rotten Tomatoes numbers are pretty impressive for this movie. 81% of critics liked it, 75% of audiences. The remake that Adam Sandler starred in, and Burt Reynolds is in that as Nate Scarborough. Great name, by the way. It really is, yeah. There's There's also a Nate Scarborough in this. I had 
and I'm sure you did as well, some really interesting issues with this movie. At least understanding what it's meant to be and watching it now. First time we've seen a movie together. It was an intimate... Intimate? Intimate and slightly uncomfortable experience. My hands kept to themselves, but yours did not. You kept offering me that popcorn on your lap for some reason. You have longer arms, I kept telling you, Ryan, (laughs) I don't want your popcorn. And by the way, I know there's no bottom to that box. (laughs) What a slut you are, not me. Well, that remake, the Sandler one, got 31% of Rotten Tomatoes critics and 61% of audiences. So actually, that's a big difference. The audiences almost like the movie. I think it's still a Rotten with 61% on that website. But the original was well-liked. I'm not so sure we agree. A little bit more numbers first, though. The original 1974 movie was 10th, although I did see it was 7th also. Anyway, it was in the top 10 at the 1974 U.S. box office. Blazing Saddles, the Mel Brooks movie, was number one. Towering Inferno was, I think, number two. They were both big hits that year. And the remake in 2005 was a big hit in its own right. I just said we didn't love the movie, so the floor is yours. Well, before we get into like some of the nitty-gritty of the movie... It's not giving anything away to say that the crux of this movie is that football game between the... 45 minutes of screen time for that game. Yeah, it's almost half the movie Mm -hmm. runtime. But it's that one football game between the guards and the prisoners. It brought to mind to me the fact that it's almost akin to an employee playing a sport against their boss, which I've done. And it's almost as uncomfortable and painful to watch as this football game was. What was the sport? Dodgeball. Ooh. That's a tricky one. And against, not with. Against. So you did not aim for your boss's head. Or did you aim well, for your boss's head? I hit one of my bosses in the groin three times. Oh, that my game. groin! And then the next year, he neglected to play against me because apparently I took it a little bit too seriously. <laughs> Which led to an equally uncomfortable game the following year where I threw the game as Paul Crew attempted to do in this for at least a portion of it. Because I didn't want to hit any more of my directors in any sensitive areas. It's a fun idea, but in practice turns out to be the most uncomfortable and potentially hazardous endeavor of my career. But have you ever done that? I know you play softball in a CBC league, but I don't know if that equates the same thing. Like, you ever hit a line drive that smoked one of your supervisors (laughs) in the forehead or something? Or did you ever pitch a softball game where you then charged at the batter and clocked him with some brass knuckles he had hidden down your jock? I do that every game, so... Okay, so that's just part of your standard strategy. (laughs) Yeah, I can't narrow that down. No, No, you're right, though. I do play in a work league, and the majority of people are CBC people. My team is maybe more half and half, but some teams seem to be entirely CBC people. Does it tend to be higher-ups, or is it relatively... One of my teammates, positions? a friend of mine, has asked many times, jokingly, about Peter Manjevich playing in this league. And I <laughs> think he did a long time ago. We're talking decades ago. I heard somebody say that he did. And then after he initiated a bench-clearing brawl, mm-hmm. he was forever banned. Thanks for watching. <laughs> no, anyway, people like that, I think, have played. Anyone who watches CBC News and knows Steven D'Souza, great dude. He was on my team a couple of years ago, a different team I used to play on. So there's an honor personality who was... A player, and I don't know if he really thought of it then, but don't hit me in the face, don't hit me in the face. <laughs> it's his twinkle, Ryan. Yes. His allure. One of my supervisors, who isn't anymore, used to run one of the teams that I play against now. So I guess had she kept playing and kept on running that team, there was a point where I could have nailed her with a line drive. Which would be both very satisfying and potentially very dangerous to mm-hmm. your future assignments, I assume. It is weird to hold something against somebody in a sporting contest, though. If you're willing to play in it and it isn't dirty... Then what are you supposed to do? You got to play the game properly. 
I've played recreational, unrefereed dodgeball in the past, aside from work, because it sounded like a fun activity. This is the dodgeball podcast all over again. Yes, it is. Oh, did we talk about this on the dodgeball podcast? I don't think you talked about your boss getting nailed Maybe, in the nuts okay. by you and that podcast. Not that no. specifically. I don't know why that didn't come to mind then. But I think as we did talk about then, playing dodgeball as an adult is really hard. Even though the balls are relatively soft, you get clocked in the right part of the body. It still hurts, and it's really hard not to get angry doing it. So I'm like you, I'm playing the game, and I don't think I'm playing it unduly aggressively. I think it's ostensibly to, to raise money for charity. We all donate like 20 bucks to United Way to play oh, okay. kind of thing. That's the whole context of it, and it's supposed to be a team-building thing. You don't want to look like an ass that's throwing the game, because I feel like that's insulting to the other players. I think so, too. From a different perspective. So I was just trying to find that middle ground of playing to win, but not too hard. You know, what you do. I should say, I don't think he held it against me, necessarily, Though he did really give me a hard time about some things I was seeking approval for going forward. So maybe he did. <laughs> it's tough, though. I don't blame the guy. If somebody smoked me in the old family jewels a few times, I don't think I'd quite look at him too favorably going forward. At least not for a little while. But anyway, to bring it back to this movie, that's what this reminded me of. The prisoners are all super pumped to beat the ever-loving bejesus out of the guards. And the guards are, at least towards the end of it, looking to cripple all of the prisoners... That's all well and good, but after the game's over, you guys are going to have to coexist. Mm -hmm. Nightsticks might go up people's asses. Okay, prisoners, good for you. You just injured these guards. This is the 70s, right? So they'll probably corner you in the laundry room or something down the line and break your legs. And they, not once. Probably hurt you a lot yeah. for many months or years. And the prisoners, for their part, if they've been injured, as they say in the movie, for one, that's kind of like, okay, great. We don't have to do hard labor for the next however long because we're recuperating. Mm. But they're going to hold that grudge, too. And if they have an opportunity to shank a guard in the prison yard, I'm sure they'd do it, too. There's a whole lot of this movie that goes unaddressed. And I think we talked about this when we were watching it to a certain degree. At the end of the movie, Paul Crew is effectively, Fuck you, Warden. I don't care what you want. I'm going to win this game. Mm -hmm. Give and, me many more years of my sentence yeah, just to show you up. So he walks off all triumphant. And we both looked at each other and we thought, Good for you, Paul, but you just screwed yourself for life now. If it's me, frankly, I'm throwing that game. I'm burying my head in whatever hole I can find for the next six months while I serve out my sentence, and then as soon as the warden signs off on my release, I'm out of there. And had Captain Knauer, Knauer been a little bit more psychotic, although he does that old, I learned respect from my opponent because he played me tough, but had he been the guy he'd been before, he would have shot Crew dead because the warden's telling him to. Oh, you're talking about after the game? The end of the game. Yeah, Crew was walking off to go yeah. get the ball. I don't know if they do that in the remake at all. I don't remember the remake. I don't remember well. that part of the remake. I don't think they do. I don't think they're that, The remake seems more intent. jolly than this movie. This movie yeah. is on, not on the comedies list, actually. It was nominated for the comedies list. Which surprised me a little bit because we didn't laugh that much. We've yeah, said that before. We're going to say this again, I think, when we do these movies that get nominated for the top 100 sports. Well, actually, top 10 sports. But the genres. So it had 10 sports movies on the genres list. And they had, I think, 50 nominees. And of the ones that are supposed to be funny, we've seen quite a few of them now, or Bev and I have. And not that many of them are really all that funny, certainly including this film. Yeah. The remake, I remember being a little bit more light and fun that way. There's some silly stuff in that movie. I saw that in the theater with other people, by the way. Maybe that's why I liked it more. A comedy's always better with a lot of people. A lot of WWF and WCW wrestlers are in that one. Maybe that makes yep. it fun, too, because they're not real actors. And by the way, I was called caretaker by a few people on my softball team for years. Oh, really? Because they saw that movie. <laughs> I was the manager, whatever, the captain of the team. Manager, same thing, basically. So are they comparing you to Chris Rock or the 1970s actor whose name I have no chance of remembering, but is fairly well known? Who plays Caretaker in this oh, one? Who is Caretaker again? I wrote it down. Oh, James Hampton, yeah. Yes, that's right. 
I was watching the China Syndrome not long ago, and he's in that movie. He's the boss of the plant, or one of the people in charge of the power plant in the China Syndrome. Well, he strikes me as one of those that-guy actors mm. of this era, and probably for another 20 to 30 years after this, where he's all over the place in relatively substantial roles in various movies. Mm. But he's never the lead, and he's never given a lot of billing on the thing. So, But a character actor that But a character does actor job. that has done very well. And when he's killed, the game starts right after that. It's a pretty solemn moment. I did not remember at all that Chris Rock is also killed in the remake. No. Yeah, I didn't either. But I looked it up on Wikipedia because I thought, there's no way they did the same thing, but they did. You're right. It was a very solemn moment, and a very gruesome and dark moment for something that, like you said, is a comedy. And I know I asked you, I think over the course of this movie, I probably turned to you six or seven times and said, are you sure this was nominated as a comedy? Mm -hmm. Because I don't remember laughing even once, not even giggling once. It, it didn't help we were talking through it a lot, but I don't know that's really the point. It wasn't really all that funny. No. It was also nominated for the Top 100 Cheers, almost inspiring. I guess it's sort of inspiring. Yeah. And it was nominated for an Oscar for the editing. Okay. It's a two-hour movie, but it's pretty well edited, I guess. And There's we, a sequence towards the end, especially, where they have all kinds of Yeah, we talked about that a little bit things. when we were watching it. They did that funky Brady Bunch sliding in. They uh, loved that in the 70s. Portions. Yeah, it was very 70s, but it worked. The most effective part of that movie, bar none, was that particular sequence mm. when that funky editing. Right, when Burt Reynolds dives in for what it turns out to be the winning score. The Towering Inferno won the editing Oscar that year, by the way. I I've never it was heard a big of hit. this movie. Never heard of Towering Inferno? No. Paul Newman, Steve McQueen. One of those... Irwin Allen disaster films in the 70s that stars a lot of big names, and that was the whole point. It's an action film, first of all, but it's got huge actors in it. But it worked. It was a giant hit. One more thing about the accolades. Longest Yard won the Golden Globe for comedy or musical that year. Let don't, me put this in, let me put this in perspective. Say, this year's winner was Green Book, which I haven't seen yet, but people say is a drama with a few laughs. So the Golden Globe for comedy or musical is often a bad choice for actually being a comedy or a musical. So not a laugh a minute selection no. typically. Is and neither saying. was this movie. No, no, it wasn't. This is one of those movies that I kind of wish I knew less about before I watched it. Because while we were going through it, I just found myself waiting. Where's the laugh? Mm -hmm. Where is any laugh? We may have stomped on some of them, like I said, though, because we were talking through it. Not constantly, but we talked more through it than we obviously would have ever before when we saw them separately. Well, usually when I'm watching movies... You I, rarely call me and interrupt me I, watching the movie. No, because I have my Ryan dummy set up on the chair next to me and I'm having an in-depth conversation. Even he talks too much. Now, that Ryan dummy may or may not be naked. We're not going to go into details right now, but... It's just a sexual podcast. So there you go, you're revealing this spoiler right there. Yes, you could score at Longest Yard. Oh yeah, well, I mean, come on. Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds showing that, off that hairy man patch of a chest. How not score? And there's that sexy sequence towards the end of this movie when his jersey gets ripped open and he reveals that belly revealing undershirt that he's wearing. The slight hairy paunch just coming out over the, the spandex shorts. I'm getting hot just thinking about I all know. these things. He was a hot man, actually. If you're a gay man or a woman, I can see why you'd been to Burt Reynolds back in that era. Yeah, he's a good-looking guy. I'm not mm. going to... And charm. I'm, I make fun. So much charm. Does anyway. he? Does he have charm? I think he has charm. He could come across like a dick in a lot of these movies, like he did in Deliverance, which was a star-making performance a few years before. But I can see why women would be drawn really? to him anyway. Sort of the Sean Connery thing, and for some of the same reasons. It doesn't matter what his role is. I always find that he comes across as a dick. Reynolds, you're talking Reynolds. about Connery. Yeah. Oh, no, not Connery. Connery I love. Connery okay. is a man's man. I can see that, but I don't know if I really fully agree with it because... I mean, you don't have Look to. Look at Smoking just... the Bandit. Do you think he's a dick in that? I'd have to re-watch the movie within that context. I haven't in the past watched it with an intention to remembering what my personal feeling was towards <laughs> his character. So do you not like him as a star then? Because his charm and his physical appeal were two of the big reasons why he was such a big star in the 70s. I like him just fine, but... 
there are actors that you expect to play a heel, or if not a heel, at least a bit of a dick character. You'll be very successful. And it doesn't mean you're unlikable necessarily in that role. The guy's got a certain type of charisma, I suppose. He's a good-looking dude in a very 1970s way, but... No stash, though. They made him shave it off in this. He looks weird at first. I got used to it pretty quickly, but I thought, where's Burt Reynolds' mustache? Yeah. And it's a very deliberate move. He wasn't maybe known for it at this point, but as he got to be a star, it was always on him. Tom Selleck had the same kind of thing, of course, yeah. through the 80s. When he didn't have it, it was so unusual as well. That is the first scene of him in the prison, is getting shaved and the haircut and all that. When I'm watching that, I'm kind of assuming that, all right, it's kind of like the military. You go into the prison, and the first thing they do is cut off any facial hair. They give you the old buzz cut or whatever. And then you go in the prison yard, and there's dudes out there with the massive 1970s lamb chop sideburns, goatees, mustaches. Was this just like a fuck you to Burt Reynolds from the warden that they shaved him? It could be that. It also could be that rookies have to go through that, but the guys who've been there for a while don't anymore. They did it at first, but they don't get recut later on. Uh, <laughs> recut. I like that. Well, this is a sports movie, even though it's set in prison. And one of the things I've hated for so long about athletes in the real world, and this has been true forever, it certainly is still true now, is hazing. So in a way, the warden is hazing him. you got to go through this because you got to go through this, not because it makes any logical sense. I thought you were going to say that George Steinbrenner was the model for the warden in this movie, and so... <laughs> Told you to trim those sideburns! <laughs> <laughs> we got a little sidetracked there, because I feel like we really need to hit on this comedy thing. It was so important to my watching the movie, just because that was the lens through which I watched it, knowing what I knew about its nomination as the best comedy in 1974. I did a bit of a double take with you when we watched the opening scene of this movie when it's the incredibly attractive actress whose name I don't remember, but I'm sure you've got on the tip of your tongue. Look here, I don't remember her name. Yeah, maybe. Who was she? I'm oh, looking God. at the credits oh, list. I didn't Ryan. write her down. I wrote only the names of the men down, other than Bernadette Peters, who's the warden's secretary. Only the men, right? It must be Anitra Ford, who was a Melissa. Is that correct? It probably was. Is that her? Yes, that is her. Okay. Anitra Ford. The opening scene of this movie is her begging him for sex and then him essentially abusing the ever-living snot of mm, her. That does not age well at all. No, and then stealing her car, evading the police, driving it into the river, getting caught, beating up a cop, going to prison. He deserves to go to prison for all he does. Okay, forget her for a second. We'll get back to that in a minute here, but just because we're talking about why he goes to jail, it's not because of what he does to her, but he beats up the cops in the bar, the whole car chase. They say he's drunk in public, so public drunkenness. He really does earn that jail time. He didn't get much, apparently. Two to five years. But then he says, oh, you know, out in six months for good behavior or all that kind of stuff, right? right? For all that he did, not much. But as for what he does to her, slapping her around, she hits him first, and maybe that's why they thought, oh, it's cool. Because even in 1974, they're probably aware you shouldn't be smacking women around, especially if you're supposed to be a hero. But maybe they thought, oh, it's cool if she hits him first. That's true to a certain degree, but he effectively throws her... And I mean throws her away from him initially. No, I agree with you. I'm just saying that's what they may have thought. No, but that's before she even slaps him. Oh, does he? Okay. Yeah, she's coming on I to him. I thought she hit him first. No, she's coming on to him in bed, crawling over him, being all sexy and whatnot. Wow, I'm smooth, sexy and whatnot. Anyway, yeah, she's crawling all over him, and then he hucks her across the room. Okay. And then gets up, starts getting dressed, and yeah, she gives him a slap across the face, and then he wails on her, throws her across the room. The physical abuse doesn't age well. Never mentioned again. And I think you're right as far as the rationale goes. But that was played straight. It came across dark and dirty. Maybe that was the point by the director. I don't even say his name yet. He's Robert Aldrich, who did some dark and dirty movies, like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, The Dirty Dozen. 
Maybe. I mean, it's an so interesting it choice for a comedy. Style. If so, it wasn't in keeping with the tone of a comedy. And likewise, even the car chase and the subsequent altercation with the cops when they actually arrest him. Mm. Again, it wasn't played for gags. I think he makes one one off. He's Burt Reynolds, so I'm sure he made some one yeah, he, some he, wisecracks that he we gave him really... a sassy wisecrack. Right. But then he gets the shit kicked out. But of he him by the so cops. deserves it. He does. There's no debate about this. So many movies of this type would maybe have it be that he does stuff that's bad, but not that bad. No, it's pretty bad. Oh, he earned it, 100. percent His first scene in the prison, Robert Lautner, whatever. Rob, Ed Lauder. Ed Lauder. Thank you. The hard-ass captain that immediately hates this guy. He gets the riot act read to him, Paul does, by this Mm -hmm. captain. And then he has to go meet the warden and do what the captain says or else. And then does what the captain says, but gets the shit kicked out of him anyway. Mm -hmm. All of that happens in the first, what, 30 minutes of the movie, you'd say? Maybe even less, yeah. And still, right up until that point, it feels like a dark gritty drama more than anything else right the chain gang stuff when they're out oh, digging yeah. in mud is cool hand luke we talked about that it felt just like cool hand luke like, chain gang the abuse the box hey, he goes into the box hey boss gonna have a drink boss no right. boy get back to work the only bit of comedy we saw which was between a nameless dude mm-hmm. who looked vaguely italian who kept doing push-ups in front of paul crew and called paul the football faggot is that the guy you're talking about oh that was the other thing yeah there's a lot of homophobic insults in this that also did not age well but 1970s even early 2000s you still would have heard that growing up in the 90s as a kid i heard worse than that the schoolyard as much as it's these days reprehensible i can't necessarily hold that against the era of this movie yeah the only bit of comedy was the old mud and the shoes back and forth and then brawl in the mud and then oh no now we're best friends right because we fought it out but aside from that like you said it's like a gritty cool hand luke chain gang movie well a movie that bev and i covered a long time ago from here to eternity has a similar thing too where the well, this is the military, so it's not a prison. But anyway, the guy in charge wants Montgomery Cliff to box. So he hazes him until he finally agrees to box. That's what happens to crew in this movie. They haze him until he finally agrees to football. Yeah, I understand all that. I just think that without even having seen it recently, I think that perhaps for all its faults, the Adam Sandler movie probably did a better job more fun. of hitting the kind of tone this movie mm-hmm. was meant for, I think. It was confusing to me tonally. No, I agree with you on that. I think we made that pretty clear that we didn't laugh that much at what was supposed to be a comedy, which was shot in the Georgia State Prison, the actual prison. That's right. Also in Savannah, not the prison, but in Savannah, South Carolina, and of course, California, a lot of that. They almost always shoot some parts of my movie in California. They certainly did at this point. One of the things that I thought of as well, Out of Sight, the George Clooney movie, where he's in prison a few different times. Okay. Both Clooney in that movie and Reynolds in this mingled with the actual prisoners because they were on set with them. Well, set, but they were on the site with them. And the idea by both directors from Steven Soderbergh and Robert Aldrich in these two movies saying, if you act like a movie star, that isn't going to work. They're not going to be able to attack him, obviously. There's guards there and probably even more guards for a movie star and a movie crew that are there. But the idea being that you better mingle with these people as much as possible. And Reynolds and Clooney, to their credit, did that. I'm sure it helped them in the performance of the movie coming across mm. as a prisoner to do that, too. Good on them for doing it. I wouldn't have the balls to, probably. Let's be honest. <laughs> we talked about the Cool Hand Luke stuff, but just through the whole movie, there's a lot of deep issues. Racism is brought up quite a bit. Prison reform, prison murder, disgraced and entitled athletes, because that is what Paul is through a lot of the film. The main character, the Burt Reynolds character, is Paul wrecking, you know, in quotes, mm-hmm. crew. The extent of his stardom in this movie in the NFL is never really talked about all that much. By the time he gets to prison and he's pressed into playing football by the warden, I think he says eight years, nine years since he touched the football. Yeah, that's about right. Right? 
from what we could estimate, I think I guess his character is meant to be somewhere in his late 30s, maybe around 40-ish in this. So he had a career in football of some success, we're meant to understand, but flared out because he shaved points, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, he didn't retire by the sounds of it. He was kicked out of the league. Yeah, it's pretty explicitly stated that it came out that he was shaving points. Was it they say that? Okay. Why did you do it? Paul has said a few times. Right? And he admits to caretaker that he did do it towards the end of the film, and then the warden wants him to do the same thing in the game against the hacks, right? The and, guards, and that's I guess his redemption moment is that he doesn't commit the same. He does, failure. but then he doesn't in the end. <laughs> yeah, well, he doesn't ultimately anyway commit the same failure of integrity and shaving points, and that's what's supposed to be the redemption arc here. Even though, like we mentioned, it screws him for life by doing it but whatever. So we don't really ever understand how good a player he truly was in the NFL, what his success was there, what record he had, what team he played for. We know none of that. All we know is that he was a professional quarterback and clearly has some serious moral failings because he not only was ousted from professional sports for point shaving, but subsequently apparently has just lived a life of total moral decrepitude debauchery yeah sounds like he's pouring himself out to any rich widow that will have him and then taking advantage of her and moving on that woman in the beginning calls him a whore you don't usually hear men called whores at any point in any movie but certainly not back in the 70s listen if any man in 1974 can play a male whore it's burt reynolds in that (laughs) low-cut v-neck shirt and all that wonderful chest and or facial hair flowing freely and he certainly has some pretty expensive taste because he says he's going to steal her Aston Martin, but ultimately settles for the Citroen, as we talked about. And he's sipping on her crystal decanter full of some sort of whiskey. Mm-hmm. I think I saw a Cuddy Sark bottle, though, which is the lowest of the low blended whiskey. So not that impressive if that's what's in the crystal decanter. Throughout the movie, this proves to be my favorite moment moments anyway over and over is the sound design we talked about this with some other movies and we discussed this while we were watching the longest yard she throws that crystal decanter at him while he's walking out the door (laughs) saving private ryan-esque explosion (laughs) yeah it's like a mortar went off or a car drove through the plate glass of a department store it wasn't like a gentle tinkle of a crystal decanter shattering against a door frame it was a boom right (laughs) all right guys i get it And I think that was also super evident in the football game. And I get it. You want to emphasize the impacts and the hits and all that. But dear Lord, it sounded like car wrecks going on when people were hitting each other during the football game at the end of the movie. Yeah, they're the mean machine. That's the Burt Reynolds team. And things do get vicious in the game, as you'd expect them to. Including a big brawl between the cons and the guards. The least surprising development in history that they would have a big (laughs) brawl. But they're actually playing the game properly. What's the final score? I don't think I wrote that down, but it seems like it's in the 30s, isn't it? They edge them out. I really wish they had gone with the original team name of like the Polite Pack or something like that. (laughs) Or the Friendly Folk and had a good wholesome game. (laughs) Whole different movie. (laughs) That is the Disneyfied version of this. Yeah, the Mean Machine. One of my favorite moments of this movie was in the lead-up, I guess we can talk about the recruitment aspect, because there's a lot of time spent... The Seven Samurai-esque recruitment scenes. Yeah, Paul doesn't want to play this game, right? The warden mm-hmm. eventually coerces him into doing it, because if you don't, goddammit, you're going to be here for life. I'll He's find still a way. really reluctant, though. He is reluctant, but he finds out, i got to do it or else I'm never getting out of this place. And we should say that the whole thing here is the warden has this quote-unquote semi-pro team of guards that he's recruited for this With great stuff in his trophy case. Yeah, exactly. But they spend a lot of time, it's a good 30 to 45 minutes mm. of screen time, showing Paul recruiting various people throughout the prison and eventually approaching some of the groups, right? Like the mm. African-American group, and you mentioned racism's mm-hmm. a big theme in this. Yep. 
they want nothing to do with the white boy at first, right? Until, good Lord, I suck at names. The Granville, that's it. Harry Caesar. Harry Caesar, yeah. So until Granville, Granny, I think is his nickname in this movie. Creative. As creative as hockey player nicknames. As like Sullivan becomes Sully. Sully. Like, whoa, you blew my mind, sir. McCartney becomes Mac. Mac. <laughs> Once Granny agrees to play, he eventually talks the other players into doing it. But up until that point, there's a lot of racial tension between the entire community and Burt Reynolds just based on skin color alone. And they are in the South. They're in Georgia. That makes a lot of sense. It does, yeah. Oh, man. I think one of the first lines of the movie that really made me cringe, too. You mentioned the chain gang scene in the swamp, Cool Hand Lukish. Don't they... I don't even want to say it, but Granville gets handcuffed to Paul, the Burt Reynolds character, in the swamp when they're digging out. And the chain gang boss, the guard, asks Burt Reynolds, you ever worked like a, or worked with a... Insert- we know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, this was the South in 1974, wasn't it, right? That would be said now, especially in a chain gang. That's yeah. one thing about movies where they want to scale back and things like smoking or this kind of language about people if they don't want to say the things that people say. I get why they don't want to do those things, but let's be real, too, because I'm sure that's still said everywhere, but especially still in the South, and especially in prison In a prison situation, environment, yeah. No doubt, but it still makes me cringe a little bit. Oh, I agree. They do spend a lot of time in that lead-up, but at a certain point, he does get together his whole crew, including the Nate Scarborough character that Mm -hmm. you mentioned. Burt Reynolds will subsequently play in the remake, right? And does the same thing. One play, and then scores a touchdown. I believe they both do. I know that Nate Scarborough on this, Michael Conrad... Scores the touchdown. I think right. Burt does too in the remake. He does. And then gets injured because Nate Scarborough, also a past professional football yeah. player, but Destroyed retired knees. because of his bad knees. So after scoring that one touchdown, there's a dirty hit from one of the guards in both movies that blows up his knee. He's out of the game. But that is also the incident that inspires Burt Reynolds to get off his ass, say, screw you, Warden. I'm going to win this game. And on you go to the end. But just before the game gets underway, you've got the old man character... Oh, Gabby Hayes. Yeah, whose name I can't remember, and I guess it doesn't matter, so let's not look it up. It doesn't matter. It's just like the old cantankerous guy that's been in there forever, and he's showing the mean machine, now that they've assembled the team, all the dirty plays in the book. You wrap your arm in this gauze, and you dip it in the plaster of Paris, and then it's hard as a rock, and stiff-arm the guys, and they're out cold. Or you've got the brass knuckles tucked in your pants, and you put them on, and you catch the guy just under the chin strap of his helmet, and he's out cold. And I thought that was just like a fun little moment because you have all of these hardened criminals sitting in like a little classroom setting, watching this (laughs) 70-year-old man, and they're all just enraptured and going, oh yeah. Best class of my life. (laughs) I never thought of brass knuckles before. They've all been in prison for 20 years. I'm sure they know how to cripple a guy surreptitiously if they want to, like in this kind of setting, right? I did not laugh. It does not make this a comedy. It's still a fun scene. What about the cross-dressing singers and cheerleaders? That's one way to get women in this movie after the opening sequence, and then Bernadette Peters is in it a little bit. She's a bizarre sex scene with Burt Reynolds. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we do have to talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about the cross-dressers first. Well, it's just guys dressed up as women cheerleaders. I think the point's supposed to be, laugh at this, audience. And maybe they did in 1974. You know what it is? I think we live in a post-Oz world. The TV series Oz. Mm -hmm. That's what, late 90s, I think, series? Yeah, more or less. yeah. When we were watching this movie, we turned to each other and I think basically said, you know what, I bet this is part of what makes this a comedy in 1974, these four or five black men dressed up as women and dancing around the stands like cheerleaders, right? And I think they were singing, they were an acapella group, but they're singing as women. That's probably played for comedy. In a contemporary movie now, I'm sure, it would have a place there, but not played for laughs. Just played as this is a men's prison 
where you probably have some transgendered or cross-dressing individuals, and they're the ones that say, okay, I don't want to play football, but I'll be the cheerleader. Oz might be the first show that I can ever remember that portrayed this kind of stuff happening in prison and played it straight. Now, whether or not it's because the characters that were behaving that way were doing it because that was their natural inclination or because they were being made to do it by whatever person... In the warden. Well, not necessarily the warden, but in prison you have whoever the prisoner is that's the big guy on campus. You're going to do this. Yeah, you're going to be the bitch of the group. You're going to behave this way. You're going to cheer be... on the mean machine. You could have it played different ways, but it wouldn't be played for laughs. And that's, I think, we both okay. agreed was probably the intent here, right? Yeah. What about Bernadette Peters and oh, yeah. The Office banging Bert? So Bernadette Peters, I think, has all of two scenes in this I movie, I think that's right? it, yeah. When Burt Reynolds is first introduced to the warden after being admitted to the prison, she's the secretary of the warden, so he briefly speaks to her. He insults her hair, asks her if any spiders live in it, and then asks her, have you ever done it standing up? And then he's carted away by the captain. And then later in the movie... Is it the caretaker, I think, that says I can get you some medical information or game footage on the prison guard team, but you got to do one thing. And that one thing turns out to be that Bernadette Peters is so hot for the Paul Crew character that she's got to bang him before she'll give up the files from the warden's cabinet. What the hell has Paul Crew done to win this woman over, aside from being yeah. the sexy beast that Burt Reynolds is? Because he just <laughs> walked in, insulted her, and left, and she's like, holy shit, i got to have this man. <laughs> I will put my livelihood and job at risk to have 15 minutes alone with him. Because standing up. Standing up in the warden's office because he, oh, swoon, swept me off my feet. Again, we're supposed to laugh. Yeah? I think so. God damn. And it's also convincing <laughs> it was... us, which a lot of Burt Reynolds movies did. And I don't know if it was him that made this happen. Maybe the directors and writers. <laughs> but then again, it was a regular theme, as I recall, in his movies. So maybe it was his ego saying, I'm the man. You got to love me. I'm not trying to hack on him because I like Burt Reynolds on a lot of films. I really hope but... it is Burt Reynolds going to the director saying, listen, I have to have one character in this movie just got to bone me. Can't survive if she doesn't have me. That's my one demand of this movie is that has to happen at least once. It could have been. You think his ego is that big? <sighs> I think a lot of actors' egos are that big. <laughs> a lot of actors have recurring tropes in their films, and maybe for him, along with the car chases, it was, if not every woman, then at least certain women have to have me no matter what the consequences are. Up until, like, the 40s or 50s, there was the big contract star thing, right? Like, mm. you were signed to a studio, and right. you were just kind of, like, slave labor to them, essentially? Not in the 70s, though. Okay, so by that point, it wouldn't have been the companies producing these movies saying, Bert is our guy his whole thing is that he's this uber sex symbol and we need women to believe that. So in every movie he's in, we're going to make sure the director has at least one woman just falling all over herself to have him just so we can perpetuate that. And when he's out there in public, it wouldn't have been an MGM or a Warner brothers specifically doing that in every no? film. Okay. But they may have realized that was what they had with the guy. And when you get enough power as an actor, you can dictate things a lot more than we ever know about. Well, we do know because I've read this kind of stuff could be rumor, could be lies, but I think a lot of it's true. But it's not supposed to be official. It's just what happens. Mm. People exercise power. So you think later in his life when Burt Reynolds appeared in the movie Striptease and <laughs> showed up in one scene essentially naked, covered head to toe in Vaseline, yeah. do you think he demanded that? Like, I'll do this movie. I only want one thing. It might have been. <laughs> might have been playing off his former sex symbol status. Because the year after that movie, he does Boogie Nights. Maybe his best performance, certainly one of his best performances, where he's never really a sex symbol. He doesn't have sex with anyone on screen. He's with Julianne Moore in the movie, but we don't see him with her specifically in that way. He's the creepy director character mm, in that, But right? he's really good in that He's film. good, yeah. 
And then remember. he actually badmouthed the movie until he realized later on he shouldn't have badmouthed it. Really? He probably didn't realize PTA was going to be a big name director, Paul Thomas Anderson. That was his second movie ever and his first well known movie. He ragged on I think that. Reynolds was doing it either during production or during the early promotion. And then when the film started getting all kinds of raves, including for him, and he got nominated for an Oscar, his only, I think, ever nomination for an Oscar. Then he realized, oh, I shouldn't be bad-mouthing movies. So, again, I like the guy, but the more we talk about this, there's things about him that are pretty shitty. Although, I've heard, you know what? We're going to do a wrestling movie in two weeks. Bret Hart, the Canadian hero wrestler, said that the best guy he ever saw for the celebrities at WrestleMania, all the people they ever had there in his tenure, was Burt Reynolds. He really? was so agreeable to everything they wanted to do. He was into it. He was a big name. That helped. He was the guy that Bret pointed out as the best one he ever worked with. I didn't know Burt... Had done uh, guest spot. WrestleMania 10, he was the ring announcer. Yeah. For the main event. All right, so let's get back to the longest yard and finish this up here. So the Mean Machine wins on a lengthy <laughs> right, enough tangents. quarterback run, and he reverses direction. It's a really long slow motion sequence I watched again on YouTube to confirm everything. He dives over, he breaks the plane, and then you see that multiple... The edit where you have yes. little scenes sliding in, split screen. Yeah, yeah. The Brady Bunch thing you called, that's what it was, yeah. And it's another movie where the underdogs win, and I don't think they should. Just making it close is good enough. Because at the end, you get some illogical stuff like Paul Crew willing to go to jail or stay in jail for a long time. Or maybe even get shot. He may not know that when he goes after the ball, but he is seconds away. If yeah. the captain was more of a psycho still, as he had been before, he's dead over a game and then over a ball. Stick this in your trophy case. You're uh, dumb. In this case, once you don't throw the game anymore you got to have him win. The guards are still winning, I think, at halftime, right? But they're only winning by, like, three points. And they want to win by a hell of a lot more because he wants to cover a spread. The warden does. I don't know if it's ever actually explicitly stated that the warden has bets out there, but he says to Paul... You're well, just to, to embarrass them, then. Yeah, to embarrass them, I think, more than anything, because his team is his life, right? His semi-pro team is his life, so you can't make the game close. So you're going to lose by 21 points. So once Paul comes back into the game and cuts the lead down to less than that, you have to have him win, because what is the audience member cheering for? I guess you're right. We talked in Major League quite a few months ago about how when they show Margaret Witten at the end, the owner of the Indians being so pissed off, I hate this fucking song. Yeah. But your mission failed months ago because the team is not failing and people are coming to the ballpark, so you're not going to Miami. So you're right. I guess same kind of idea here, that once he doesn't have them lose by 21 points, if they lose by five then the then, warden's still mad. It doesn't yeah, matter. So. Paul's equally screwed, but you don't get the emotional payoff of, hey, oh, look, yeah. they showed the guards what's up because the guards still win, but Paul still gets boned at the end of the day. I guess the 70s, though, so often you had dark or at least bad endings, unhappy endings. Look at Rocky a couple years after this movie, maybe the ultimate sports movie That's true. of all time, certainly one of the most successful sports movies of all time. Maybe it is the most successful sports movie of all time. I haven't really looked at that. Yeah, you know what? Now, Rocky does not win. It could have been an interesting ending if... Paul does attempt to come back, but then rather than crossing the plane on that final run, get stopped at the goal line and they mm. lose, but they lose by five points or whatever. The audience member is just left thinking, oh shit, <laughs> great, Paul's redeemed, but the bean machine's still lost. The guards are happy, but the warden's still going to punish him. It might have been an interesting directorial choice. I can live with it either way, but I think they should have lost. I keep saying that, though. But I think it's going back to the fact that I'm a big Rocky fan, and in the first movie, he doesn't win. And that's believable because he shouldn't have won, and same thing here. But at least Burt Reynolds is a believable athlete, much like Kevin Costner. Yep. When they do sports movies, they seem like people that actually play the sports. Well, Burt did. He was drafted by the Baltimore Colts. He played for FSU, Florida State University. Yeah. But he didn't play a quarterback. No, he was a tailback. Or he was nickel, a tailback. That's what it was, yeah. 
One thing that Burt Reynolds did not do, he was up for, and he was up for everything at this point, especially after this movie, because it was a hit, was One Flew to the Cuckoo's Nest, the very next year after this. And I think one of the reasons why is because he essentially played Mac in this. It's a Rage Against the Machine kind of role. I'm going to be my own man. I'm going to fight against authority. And win or lose, I'm going to be myself. Also, Richard Keel's in this movie. He's Jaws in Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, the Bond films. And we're probably going to cover Happy Gilmore sometime this year, and he's in that as well. So we'll see Richard Keel yet again. One of maybe the only moments in this movie that I cracked a bit of a smile or a snicker was when, during a practice, one of the badass recruits of Paul Crew doesn't really uppercut or punch him, but kind of does like a little taekwondo elbow to the face of the Jaws guy, mm. breaks his nose, and he got this seven foot six giant blubbering on the field. Yeah. Like, he broke my fucking nose. <laughs> that was a cute little yeah. moment. Is this the greatest football movie? A lot of people would say yes. For me, it's Friday Night Lights or a movie we talked about, I think, two weeks ago, and we're going to do it one of these days, North Dallas 40. Really? I think Friday Night Lights is a movie I didn't love the first time I saw it, but repeated viewings, it's become one of my... Maybe not favorite sports movies, but certainly one of my favorite football movies. Okay. We've talked before about how there are dozens, maybe even hundreds of baseball movies and boxing movies. And I guess football is maybe the third best sport that's ever been covered in the total of movies you could do. Because I know you're a big fan of Rudy and there's, I can't think yeah. of them. Basketball, I think, actually is up there as well. But I got thinking about this and Friday Night Lights is the one I would say is the best. Really? See, I've never seen North Dallas 40. Mm-hmm. I've only ever seen Friday Night Lights once, and I thought it was okay, but maybe on a rewatching, I'd appreciate more. So, now. would you put this tops over those ones? No. Okay. Number one, Ace Ventura. Is there football? Oh, Dan Marino. <laughs> Laces out, Ryan. <laughs> Do you actually see any of the football in that movie? <laughs> There's no actual football. Because in North play. Dallas 40, one thing about that film I haven't seen in a long time, I don't think you really see much action. It's more about Nick Nolte fighting against authority. Yeah. It's a sports movie, but it's not it's on not... the field sports movie. Like, this is constantly on fields whether it be practice fields or the actual game we've talked about other movies where the sport is only ever shown on screen a fraction of there's the not movie. that much actual boxing in rocky there's very little in a movie you don't like raging bull again the two most Freaking popular raging bull the most popular sports movies by the afi number one and number two on their list their top 10 i don't watch as many football movies as i do some of the other sports just because i like sports like baseball hockey and basketball more than i do football but as you mentioned rudy for me has always effectively tugged on my emotional heartstrings as sappy and goofy as that movie is in some ways. So for me, that's probably my favorite football movie. I want to see it again because I only saw it once. I wasn't a big fan. I didn't buy the ending. I'll definitely mock the ending if we do cover it. But we should watch that later this year. We probably will. That movie benefits from knowing less about the true story of it for reasons that you kind of implied just then. In like the inspired by a true story in quotes kind of way, yeah, it's a true story, but it's embellished for cinematic effect. So when you know what really happened, it kind of takes away a little bit of the emotional charm of the actual movie. But I still think it's effective. And I kind of like Sean Astin. I so. do too, well, especially as Sam Wise Gamgee. And also in... What am I thinking of in this? Oh, and The Goonies. Of course. His seminal mean? performance in The Goonies. Uh, I think maybe Sam and Lord of the Rings even more so. No. Sam Wise? Mr. Frodo? No. <laughs> Okay, so our last thoughts on Longest Yard. We thought the movie was okay. I guess we're agreeing. We didn't laugh. We said that dozens of times already in this podcast. We agree. It's Are a, you a thumb up, though? As we've laid out in painful detail at times, this movie doesn't really succeed in some ways that you would expect it to if you're told certain things about it. You don't laugh. It's weirdly dark. Some of the character beats seem a little bit out of place by modern uh, yeah. sensibilities. But you know what? At the end of the day, you're watching the game, and it's actually done very well. 
you do root for the team. You kind of feel contempt for Paul at times, and you want him to succeed. At I least struggle, I did. I struggle with that because he's being stupid, so it's harder to root for him and harder to root for that team. I agree. I think that's the whole point at the beginning and through the early parts of the second half of the game. He is contemptible. He is weak as he has been through his entire life. And when he had the opportunity to really redeem himself with the warden, he failed. And it was only because of the sacrifice of Nate Scarborough that he ever did find any kind of personal redemption anyway. And maybe movie. the caretaker thing was hanging over his head as well. He felt bad about the fact that guy was murdered by some other crazy con. Yeah, I think it's a good movie. Yeah. I don't know whether to say it's fine. It's not great. My thumb is dead in the middle and wavering towards <laughs> down. Your thumb is semi-flaccid? Semi-flaccid. It's not a strong one. It's just because the movie works enough, but it could work better. Robert Aldridge, though, he was a tough-ass filmmaker. Maybe they needed somebody with a lighter touch to do this, but you need somebody who can work with all these big badasses, and I guess they actually worked with real prisoners, too, so yeah. you couldn't have somebody who's just a comedy director, probably. They would just stomp all over him. Yeah. How was your beer? The beer was good. It did not mash me the same way that those poor buggers okay. got mashed, but I tell you what, it is refreshing and delicious. My Ryan diet has been sliding down nicely. <laughs> Sliding into the end. Sliding road. again right now. I think we're generally in agreement on the quality of the movie, but I think we're both firmly in agreement that this is a sexy beast of a movie that... Firm is the right word for it, <laughs> sir. <laughs> oh, you can score. We said that about 45 minutes ago. Absolutely, you can score. Despite the lack of women in this film. Yeah, that's true. There aren't many women in this film, but the first three minutes of it, would you say Anitra? Anitra something? Yeah. Showing up in that lacy and... She looked good. Pretty much see-through negligee, which threw me for a loop, too, but... Yeah, she's a pretty lady and a sexy beast of a man. And Burt Reynolds just put in his time and some sweaty short shorts on the practice field. Certainly sexier than two weeks ago, John Candy, the star of Cool Runnings. Okay. Or the movie we're going to do in two weeks from now, David Arquette. I'm not willing to admit any of those things without <laughs> firm debate, Ryan. But We'll move on. We'll move on. So David Arquette does star in Ready to Rumble. And that's what we're going to cover on February 7th. And other than now playing Project Podcast that Bev and I did years ago, where we saw the movie in the theater and then reviewed it right after it, this is the very first time that I'm going to review a movie with you or with Bev that I haven't previously seen at least once before. Oh, wow. I don't know why I never saw this movie because I am a lapsed wrestling fan and I'll certainly come up in two weeks. And I love the wrestler, but I never saw Ready to Rumble. Now, Ryan, you saying you never watched this movie even though you were a big macho man fan? Oh, no! Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Doing his voice burns your throat so fast. I feel like when we talk about this movie, there'll be a five-minute burst of enthusiastic wrestling impersonations, which will probably be mostly Macho Man, just based on the uniqueness of his voice. And then we're both going to be hoarse and pained and give it up for the rest of the discussion. It'll be a very short podcast. <laughs> we can't continue. Five minutes and out. Oh, yeah. Well, enjoy the Super Bowl. It's one reason we cover the longest yard right now, because the Super Bowl is coming up in just a few days. Do you have a pick? We don't know who's there yet because we're recording this quite a ways before. The Super Bowl teams are... We've got four left, Ryan. That's true. Never bet against the Patriots. I was going to say... Put it that way. I think Tom Brady's quote recently was something along the lines of, we know everyone thinks we suck and can't win a game, but hell, if there's one quarterback left that I wouldn't bet against to win when it matters, it's Tom Brady. If people want to say he's the greatest ever, I'm not going to dispute them. People may hate the guy. A lot of people do. If you're not a fan of his, you probably hate him. I'm indifferent to the Patriots. I actually kind of like them. I respect when the Yankees were great for so long in the 2000s and the 90s for that matter. Yep. And I respect the Patriots for the same reason. They're great. I respect any team that puts together a dynasty in modern sports. Mm. I understand what you're saying about the Yankees. I respected that less 
because baseball didn't have the same salary constraints as most other leagues do, so they could just spend their way to championships. Even though the core of their team was mostly homegrown, the Patriots are playing with the same money that basically every other team in the yeah. NFL has, and they've just done it better, helped largely because of the talent of Tom Brady. But you know. it could be the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. It could be the Rams. Who knows? We don't know. <laughs> we can't say. If I have to pick one team, I'm going with Tom Brady until he proves that he's washed up. He's already a legend beyond belief, maybe the greatest ever. If for no other reason than he's married to Giselle. Mm-hmm. Good taste. <laughs> All right, so you can tweet You're me. You're talking about Tom Brady, not Giselle tasting good, right? Both. <laughs> well, I don't know, but I'm sure she does. So you can tweet me at moviefiend51. Oh, <laughs> well, that was a really awkward way to end the podcast. You can tweet Chris at scoring at movies. That's correct. We actually have a few tweets up. We're still working on that website, but that's not a thing yet. You still have to not go to top100project.com or to the Libsyn feed through iTunes. That's right. That's for the right. podcast. Soon. Soon. Mm. So if you're subscribed to Top 100 Project, you'll get these podcasts as well. All right, then. Take her easy, dudes. I know that you will. Hike? Hut, hut, hut. Hut.